You're listening to CISD on SOAS Radio. Hello, good afternoon, uh, everyone. My name is Avinash Paliwal, and I am a lecturer. <laughs> I'm a lecturer at uh, CISD uh, here, and I focus mostly on South Asian uh, international relations in South Asia. We have been we've started a new kind of seminar series at SOAS, which is the South Asia in Global Affairs seminar series, and we are delighted to hold the second seminar in that series. And uh, <coughs> joining us today is Dr. Frederick Cray, uh, who has specially taken the train uh, down from Paris uh, this morning, very kindly so. Uh, Frederick is. Uh, Anyone who's working on South Asian diplomacy or security issues cannot uh, afford to miss uh, Frederick's writing. Some very fascinating pieces on a lot of variety of different issues, not just India. And his latest one, I'll come to that in a second, uh, but also on Afghanistan, Pakistan, uh, much more specifically so. He is a non-resident senior fellow at Carnegie Endowment's South Asia program. And he's currently also working for the Ministry of Defense of France. Foreign Affairs, sorry, Ministry of Foreign Affairs of France. His latest book that I have right in front of me is one of, it ki- of its kind. It looks at what he's going to talk about today, of course, which is the evolution of India's act east policy. Uh, it's called India Turns East, International Engagement and U.S.-China Rivalry. It's the first of its kind because it's the first book which actually gives a framework to understand how India has thought about anything that is eastward. Now, traditionally, anyone looking at India would say that you know, this is a country which is focused quite strongly on its northwest, and generally the west, historically so. And, that, and also, it's, land, you know, it's, it's a territorial power rather than a maritime power, although there's a huge maritime boundary. And there are historical reasons for that. But over the past kind of couple of decades, especially post ni- early 1990s, and much more so today, we see a very concerted drive to at least frame India's foreign policy in terms of its relationship with its east, with the whole of Southeast Asia, ASEAN, Japan, uh, its immediate neighbor, which is Myanmar, but also Bangladesh. And a lot of that has to do, allegedly so, because of China. And the relationship, a very tenuous arrival, you know, a, a strained relationship that India has had with China. The anxieties of whose rise have been taken a hu- new kind of sense of urgency in 2018, as China kind of marches ahead on a variety of issues. I think having been working on these issues for safely around two to three decades, there's a lot of, you know, uh, you know Frederick has been working not just, you know, uh, in, a, as a, you know, in a capacity of an academic or a policy analyst, but also as a practitioner. So there's, there's a wealth of experience and uh, information and analysis that we really uh, can capitalize on. So I would highly recommend whenever you get a chance, and if you're interested, please get a copy of this book. But rather than me telling you more about the book and its findings, I would actually now give the floor to Frederick. The Gorky's policy initially was something very simple, a willingness to develop trade and attract foreign policy to fund the reform that had been initiated in 1991 in India. And it was no more than that. So there was not this grandiose scheme that has been uh, talked about later on. But soon, however, it did uh, evolve into something much larger, which didn't come as a clearly set strategy, which didn't come as something designed from the very beginning and gradually implemented. Uh, On the contrary, it came as something 
of a sort of a cumulative process which had very clearly political and later on tragic dimension, which came to be called as the, the Lucas policy. So you may ask why speak about India Lucas policy? I mean, first of all, who speaks about India's Lucas policy? India suddenly, and even then, uh, one of my big surprises in, in, in writing this book is when I was conducting uh, interviews with policymakers, you know, the accepted interview on the basis that I would ask about his policy, when it came to the actual conversation, it was always about something else, something smaller, something larger, but it was no, never about what I would have called Lucas policy. So, which which was in itself an indication that you know that becomes such a, a sort of a catchword, meaning different thing to different people anyway. But beyond that, why worry today? Why be interested today in something which was initiated in 1992, which may have been developing since then, but in which has very little significance outside India. Well, in many ways, questions about the history of any policy are questions about the present. And when I started the book that was post, uh, it was in 19 and, and 2012, uh, it was roughly one year after the announcement of the U.S. rebalance toward Asia. And that was also the time when Mrs. Clinton started talking about the Lucas policy saying very clearly it's time to, uh, for India, I don't know if she said to stop looking is, but start acting, but something, something of that kind. So it meant that for, for the US too, I mean, uh, the Lucas policy adds some sort of a significance, and that significance had to be placed mm -hmm. in the context of the US rebalance toward Asia. But I mean, what did it mean? Was it that uh, there was an actual convergence of interests? Mm -hmm was it that it was naturally seen by the United States as sort of a complement of what they wanted to do? Did it naturally fit in their policy in Asia? That was not that clear. Or if there was a lot of enthusiasm, for example, in Washington within the Indian diaspora, when you started looking at things and when you started asking about the very promoter of the policy within the administration, you got a slightly different languages. And that's the differences which interested me and which brought me into, the, into this thing. Now, the, the conversion point for everybody was obviously China. In 2011, we are roughly two years before Xi Jinping comes in, but China is already a problem. It's not that in the US, China has never been talked about before that, but I mean, suddenly China's assertiveness was becoming much more real, or were perceived as such. I mean, I don't want to enter a debate about Chinese assertiveness or Chinese uh, uh, benignness when it comes to international relations, that's, that's a different debate. But this perception was there, that was articulating the political discourse, and there is a clear link between the two. Now, for India, managing China was a concern long before it became a concern for, uh, for America. I mean, China was, first of all, a failed partner painful memory, 62, humiliating defeat, and so on, with a huge impact on India's foreign policy. Huge impact because after 62, India's foreign policy became largely reactive, in any case. Not that it, it was uh, a shock for Nehru. Uh, it has often been said, and I won't repeat it, that he, he died, uh, uh, you know, first of all, he died only two years after 62, in 64, and so on. And this definitely had a lasting impact on, uh, on India. 
But then new factors happened. 1980, that's the beginning of the Chinese reform. 1976, the death of Mao, then uh, Rao Feng, then Deng Xiaoping in the beginning of the reform. And then in very early on, people start talking of a Chinese reform, people start talking about potential and so on. And India is facing its own need for, the, uh, for, for reform. And it's facing its own need because of the end of the Cold War, the collapse of the Soviet Union, which has a lot of direct and indirect consequences for it. First of all, this is the end of the preferential economic relationship with, uh, with the Soviet Union. That is, uh, no longer preferential tariff, no longer preferential tr- uh, prices. This is the end of the first uh, Gulf War. Uh, at least, be, well, it's not actually the first, but uh, it's usually called the, the, the first Gulf War in the, in the literature, so we'll call it this way. And this has huge consequences for the Indian economy because suddenly there is a new sh- oil shock and therefore India, I- India is about to default on its uh, international payment and so on. And strategically, India feels suddenly isolated. Its main partner in the region is no longer ready to stand by it. This, the Soviet Union has collapsed, the Soviet Union has different concerns. And the Soviet Union, by the way, or whatever mm-hmm. is left of it, and whatever its successor state is, Russia, is more concerned by improving relations with the West than looking at India. So there we are with the thing. Mm-hmm. So this is a book which, in a way, had the, uh, was overambitious in the sense that it was trying to uh, be about India, of course, and India's, uh, India's foreign policy was about also about Asia and the way Asia evolved, it was also about the, the larger picture. And that's uh, uh, where I hope we'll end up, uh, what we'll end up talking about. In India itself, there was, of course, a series of different trends emerging. Asian regionalism, that was not really new, that was taking a different uh, meaning. That was the beginning of what one, one called the Asian globalization. India, on the one side, was still stuck in his uh, previous model, a previous economic model inward-looking, some socialist pictures, and so on. And uh, next to it, there was this booming uh, Asian economies, uh, extremely active, very dynamic, very... uh, And India was afraid of being left out of it. This would have had, of course, a reinforcing effect on its relationship with China, because it meant that China, being part of it, China was bound to grow much faster, which would have increased the potential to modernize its its uh, its military, increase its gap, increase its influence over the rest of Asia, and so on and so forth. So some remarks to start with. First of all, the Lukis policy was perhaps the most important foreign policy initiative of India post-Cold War. As I said, it was conceived as a response to India's economic challenges generated by the end of the Cold War, termination of special economic relationship, and so on and so forth. It was initiated in 1992, and it was an attempt to reconnect with Asia as part of India's economic uh, globalization. As I said also, political and strategic considerations were present from the very beginning, but political consideration was not just about reasserting itself on the Asian scene. I mean, the integration process within South Asia was stuck. It was stuck mainly because of the India-Pakistan relationship. So South Asia was going basically nowhere. And we ended up with that very paradoxical attempt at regionalism. Usually you start integrating regionally with your neighbors, which is common sense and indeed makes sense. 
This time India was trying to get integrated into a region which was not far away, but not exactly his immediate neighborhood. And there was, of course, the concern about uh, an ascendant, powerful and potentially uh, hegemonic China. The other consequences of the Cold War was that also, and this is an important element to understand, there was a subsequent reduction of the American forces in the region. And there was the fear emerging linked to the Chinese problem that there would be a strategic vacuum which would be filled by China precisely. So it was vital for New Delhi to try to set the limits to Chinese influence. And this, in order to do that, India needed to expand its economic and political power, and this was not an easy task to accomplish. But it also sent us back to another problem, which is the rapprochement with the United States, which had been initiated during the 90s, is actually an integral part of this India's integration into Asia. This is what makes everything possible for a set of reasons. India gets out of the Cold War largely isolated. As Rajamohan would say, uh, say time and again, it emerged on the wrong side of the Cold War. So it did emerge on the wrong side of the Cold War meant that he had no longer any meaningful ally in the region. But it was also opposed in many ways to this US system of alliances which had been established in the 50s, in the 60s, and ASEAN, for example, created in 67, was very much a creation of the United States in order to meet the, uh, to prevent, sorry, uh, sub coming subversion in the region. So there we are with a very strange situation politically in a way where the India is not part of any alliance which aims at containing its main rival in the region, when the very country which initiated this anti-communist subversion alliance is now close to China, uh, India's main rival, that is China, since 71 and so on. And in order to break that side of alliance, you need to do two things. One is going to uh, uh, improve your relationship to, with Asia and whoever is available in, the, in Asia. And the second one is improve your relationship with the US. And perhaps I'll start with this, uh, the, the, this second, uh, this second uh, issue. In 1992, uh, India and the United States were two strange democracies. I and mean, that was certainly a paradox, but here are two countries which had everything to get along very well with one another, you know, two countries which were totally estranged from one another. I mean, there was certainly a strong personal factor in all this. I mean, everybody knows the, the quality of the relationship between India Gandhi and Nixon, for example. That was not the whole thing. You're, India, for years, had been facing an eyesight for which you were with it or against it. And that was very much a Cold War mentality. That was very much a U.S. mentality as well. And non-alignment had not gone, not gone very well with, uh, with Washington. On top of it, the subsequent evolution of India, getting closer and closer to the, United, to the USSR, has suddenly made things work. Nevertheless, 1992, there is a de deliberate decision in New Delhi to start getting closer to the U.S. And this... This rapprochement will be done in two parts. First of all, 
the liberalization of the Indian economy will make India slightly more attractive to the United States. Not immediately attractive, but at least what emerged in 1992 is the promise of a large market. It's perhaps no more than a promise. To a large extent, this is still sort of a promise. It's not yet a reality, but it is something there that is much more attractive than the previous system. The second thing is in the strategic realm. And the decided thing is definitely of a strategic nature. This is India nuclear test. So India nuclear test would certainly not have had the same impact uh, if China hadn't been uh, a strong motivator for both the US and China. Nevertheless, they took place in a context where China was already seen by the US as a potential rival. That was much anticipated, that was exaggerated, nevertheless, that was a reason. And when in 1998, India conducted a series of tests, then we end up the, uh, with a process which will lead to a very close rapprochement, still going on in three phases. The first phase is a phase, the first phase is a phase of uh, strong tensions between the two countries. I mean, the U.S. immediately decide of a number of sanctions. They supplies immediately afterwards to Pakistan and so on. But I mean, but very quickly, however, a dialogue initi is initiated between Jinjia Singh and Srop Talbot, the number two of the State Department, who was to become the, the, the head of the Brookings Institution for, for quite some time. And this dialogue will very quickly lead to a serious rapprochement to the point that Bill Clinton visited officially India, the first visit of, an in, of a U.S. president to India in I don't know how many decades, but for definitely a very, very, very long time. Then, of course, the most spectacular aspect of the, uh, the, the, the rapprochement came later, and it was still articulated around the nuclear issue. And, of course, I'm jumping faces because there had been a number of smaller step in between, but this is the uh, negotiation for the civil India-US nuclear agreement, which is initiated in 2005, 18 of July 2005, the agreement is signed in, in, in Washington, then it's concluded in November 2008, and then India become, gets somehow out of the nuclear apartheid, or what it did perceive as such, at least for, for, for a long time. And then there is the prospect of the U.S. suddenly helping India get uh, turning its potential into a reality. That's where we are in many ways still now. Things are moving progressively in quite a difficult way. I mean, India is a complicated partner. The U.S. is also a complicated partner. That's the kind of reality that the, our American friends tend to forget sometimes. But the fact is the the relation is progressing, but that's when the relation is really established and solidified. Then come 2001, 2011, sorry, and the decision to uh, go on with the rebalance toward Asia. Of course, the rebalance toward Asia is not what it, what it has been presented to be later on. The famous pivot, if you remember, was no more than an attempt to requalify the withdrawal from Afghanistan as something positive. In other words, it had a negative impact for India, but it did open new opportunities. And that's how the two countries got reconnected into the, uh, uh, through the Lukis policy and the willingness to play in a quid pro quo to go further in this rapprochement. With a lot of ambivalence on both sides, 
uh, not everybody putting the same significance in the same fact, but the fact is two the two countries got together from then on. So what were the determinants of the Lukis policy? I will not repeat that, you know, it was a cumulative process. Let's say that, to, to make it simple, that we can distinguish two basic phases. The first one is from 1992 to 2003. This is essentially, if not exclusively, an economic phase. Uh, it's an economic phase where India looks at increasing its foreign trade and getting FDI. The first choice, and it's essentially with Southeast Asia. The first choice of India was not for Southeast Asian countries, it was for Japan and Taiwan. But when the Indian leadership tried to get the support and investment of Taiwan and Japan, they face a no somewhere. Because both countries, both Taiwan and Japan, were more interested in investing in, in China at the time, because China started a reform, the, its reform 12 years earlier, was more advanced, was more promising, at least in the short term, and the return promised to be uh, more important. So, in the leadership had to look for alternatives. And the alternatives were found in Singapore, a country which had always wanted to India to be more involved in the region, to work more closely with India, and so on and so forth. And Singapore was instrumental, and still is, probably one of the most one of the most uh, consistent support of India not out of faith in the Indian system but because it does understand that it needs to balance China as much as, uh, as it can and you'll probably remember uh, Lee Kuan Yew's comment on an Asia flying on its two wings uh, which by the way implies that uh, Singapore is uh, the pilot in the middle <laughs> which makes it even even uh, more interesting. So, le, 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 what are the, 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 the imperative for the Lukis policy? The first one is economic, I've mentioned it, I will repeat it. No, in 1990, the early 90s, I mean, India clearly understands that it has to look beyond the confines of its traditional isolationist policy. The, the new prime minister in 1991, Narasimha Rao, finds a very deteriorated economic situation. Uh, it, the government faces a very severe balance of payment crisis, requiring India's to mortgage its gold reserve to stave off an uh, unprecedented, unprecedented sorry, default on loan repayment, uh, and aggravating India's immediate vulnerabilities. So, as I said, the immediate focus was to uh, attract foreign direct investment. India needed to reform, India wanted to reform, but India didn't have the means to reform. It had initiated some reform, it didn't have the capacity to go any further. So there was the need for, uh, for cash that it actually looked for and, uh, and got partly from there. But also, you know, very early on, the intention was also to reap the potential benefits of the globalization. The idea of integration is central to the Lukis policy. And yet, this is an integration the Indian way. That is, that India is integrated into the regional trade, not so much in the actual investment flow. First of all, investment always takes some time before they actually materialize, before they actually start flowing to the country. And for, you know, I was living in Delhi between 1999 and 2004, 
And this was a period where the World Economic Forum, for example, was constantly insisting on you know, developing FDI, investing in India, and so on, but that was not obvious. And if you look then at the flows, which were, the flags were going to China and the ones were going to India, there was simply no comparison. It's only later on that India started to, perhaps, to catch up. But I mean, it takes time, and basically, if you look at China's initial model, it also did roughly 10 years before first, the first significant uh, FDI took place in the country. Similar process did happen in, the, in, in, uh, in India, with vast difference. I mean, India expected FDI to pay for the infrastructure when the Chinese were offering uh, infrastructure on the spot and so on. So there were different things, there were different models, there were different orientation also of that, that what, what was decided. China created a system which was aimed at exporting whatever it could export. So it became a hub for, uh, it became sort of a, uh, you know, the uh, manufacturing uh, for the, uh, very quickly, for Asia first, for the whole world later on. India was not in that model at all. India wanted to satisfy the needs of its population, develop its internal market very early on, and that led to a very different uh, process. And if you look at the kind of criticism which has been addressed, not by the outside world, by, by the Indian Prime Minister itself, to the Indian business, this is very interesting, because the Indian business complains about many, the content of many uh, foreign trade uh, agreements, for example, when the Prime Minister says, that, well, look, this is you, Indian business, who has to take advantage of what is actually being done. And he said that more than one time. Why? Because the Indian business is still is still aiming at developing the Indian market more than actually looking to the outside world. Yet at the same time, there is absolutely no comparison between what has been achieved, <coughs> the, the kind of situation we know now when it comes to trade, and the situation which existed in 1992. Anybody who is vaguely honest is simply at looking around when you visit Delhi and what you and comparing to the kind of Delhi which existed uh, then cannot ignore that there has been a vast change and this policy to a large extent has been some sort of a success. But there is a difference between what is being achieved and the fact that this change, no matter how real it is, uh, may be sufficient in order for the country to play the role that it aspires to on the, inter on the Asian for regional and international scene. India yet had some assets of its own. I mean, it was large uh, and cheap labor, uh, relatively well, re relatively skilled, uh, capable of doing things, a solid or relatively solid technological base. I mean, for years, I mean, casual observers of India were surprised that India on the one side is capable of putting him, some, so, sending a man in orbit and at the same time, uh, if, we, if we go by cliches, still have some level of real poverty within the country. Nevertheless, this is a reality, and this reality is, in a way, always been there. I mean, the Indian civilian nuclear program started immediately after independence, kept developing and so on, and the, the, this contrast is still very much there. Now, the political dimension of the Look East. I mean, it's difficult to say where, whether uh, the Indian decision-makers of the time had in mind that, yes, we will institutionalize everything we do, and therefore will appear as a regional player, and later as a, 
as, a, as an international one. But this is in fact what happened. India wanted to be integrated in the region economy, but it also wanted to be politically integrated in the region. And that's where the strategic considerations started entering into play. Because if they didn't do so, that meant that the whole field was left open for China to develop its influence in the region, therefore that could have become a major problem. So it did st use its FTAs to strengthen bilateral relationship with each member state of ASEAN and uh, try to carve out some sort of a suitable diplomatic status for itself in, uh, in Asia. And in doing so, it did manage to prevent any, to prevent Southeast Asia, sorry, to fall under the influence of any regional power. And I think it's important to insist on any regional power. It's not just, it's not just uh, China. China was very much in the mind, but I mean, Japan was also a concern. And to a large extent, Japan is still very much a concern uh, what you could do in the region. But having said that, there is also a specificity of the Lukis because this is around ASEAN, and ASEAN is not just any organization. ASEAN is ASEAN, and the, the idea of ASEAN centrality is something which is politically meaningful. ASEAN centrality does not simply refer to the fact that Southeast Asian member states of the organization are the core group around which a number of institutions are articulated, and it's not just the organization around which the regional security and economic architecture are articulated, it's also <coughs> mode of functioning. And this mode of functioning is what? This is an organization which works by consensus, non-binding decision. And this is something which suits India very well. And it does suit India very well for a very simple reason. It means that it can be to just anything it doesn't like. So it can prevent just anybody from uh, imposing precisely its own hegemony. And the drama of India today is precisely that this ASEAN centrality is eroding. We'll come back to that <coughs> later on in the discussion, but uh, it's eroding because of the growing polarization between China and the United States. And therefore the center of gravity of the region is getting gradually out of ASEAN itself. ASEAN is becoming more polarized. Decisions are made out of it, or not out of it, but at least are strongly influenced by the power game which is being played by Washington and Beijing, and it's becoming more difficult to manage. So we're not at a point where ASEAN centrality has become insignificant and lost all relevance for a country like India. This is a challenge which is put to ASEAN. This is a challenge to India's foreign policy in the region at a time where it's seriously questioning the future of its policy in the region. The disinstitutionalization of the policy was fairly gradual but fairly fast as well. 1993, India becomes a sectoral dialogue partner. So those, then 1995 become a full dialogue partner. Those various levels define something um, very practical, in fact. This is not just a, a nice word. Sectoral dialogue partner, you discuss the level of general secretaries of administration, and you discuss only off-sector, se some sectors of the uh, uh, of activities. 
full dialogue partner, you discuss everything at the level of ministers. Then you become a summit level partner and then this is the level of head of state and governments and so on and so forth. Then 1995, then India also start joining organization which goes beyond what it traditionally seeks from an organization like ASEAN and this is uh, it's gradually entering the security area because in 1996 it does join the ASEAN Regional Forum and the ASEAN Regional Forum has been for a long time the only security uh, organization linked to ASEAN. Of course it's essentially a talking shop but this is a talking shop which in a way defines the agenda of the region where a number of issues are being discussed. Still in the ASEAN way, not binding, by consensus, so not necessarily leading very quickly to a very concrete decision or very concrete action, but at least mitigating whatever may exist in terms of tension, uh, mitigating uh, or slowing down or preventing uh, any hegemonic temptation uh, from other powers and so on. And then comes the beginning of the 2000s, and then we're entering a new phase for, uh, for India's Look East policy. And this new phase is both uh, an enlargement sorry, of both the geographical as well as thematic scope of the Look East. Suddenly India starts looking at, the, um, at uh, countries like Australia, Japan, South Korea. Thematically it starts talking much more seriously about security. And there is sort of a logic into this. This is not that suddenly India has become so self-confident and so strong that it can start asserting itself in the regional scene. It is as much a consequence as a motivation of its Turkish policy. It's a consequence because it now has to assume the strategic consequences of its economic performance. There has been a book written on that by Sanjay Baru, which has exactly the title, Strategic Consequences of India's Economic Performances. If you do start trading beyond uh, your immediate neighborhood, then you'd need to be able to secure, to secure uh, your sea line of communication and so on. And yes, there is also the need to start building up relation in front of what is increasingly seen as a pressure, then something oppressive, which is China's assertiveness in the region. So 2003 marks a new beginning in it. This is clearly said in a speech by then Foreign Minister Jashwan Sina. Uh, I can't remember where the speech was made, but it's totally irrelevant anyway. Uh, the fact that it was made is the, uh, is the only thing which actually matters. You know, again, uh, how could we analyze the China factor into this? There is this realization very early on, and I already mentioned that, that unless India does something, it will not be able to control the asymmetry between itself and China. In 1992, this is already a concern, but China is still very much self-absorbed. Uh, this continues later on. In the early 2000s, this is a very different scenario. This is a very different picture. First of all, because this is not just India which fears its neighbors. This is basically everybody in the region which are feeling uncomfortable with the Chinese growth. And this is the US, 
which in a way is projecting his own fear on China and the Chinese gradually starting talking about what they could or could not do in the, uh, in the region. But this requires, in any case, uh, a, a, set of a set of measures by India because even a strategic convergence providing that China is the, only, the is is the sort of glue that should or could bind at least every uh, uh, every country in the region or every country on Chinese periphery just doesn't work this way does not work as simply and that's uh, something I often use with my own students to uh, describe the strategy is a little more complex than just uh, ganging up against your common enemy in order to get something done because what the dilemma that everybody is faced with in the region is that on the one side everybody is aware uh, every country on Chinese periphery is aware that it cannot uh, resist Chinese uh, gradual, not expansion, but gradual assertiveness, which start materializing in tensions all around it alone. But the risk incurred, security risk incurred by ganging up with other countries in, in the region has to be weighted against the cost in security terms that this ad hoc coalition may generate. So, there we are with countries which have conversions of interest but which are unable to, to elaborate similar policies. <coughs> and this is the dilemma in which we are to a large extent still right now. Look at the relationship between India and Australia, for example, and you have the same kind of question being asked on both sides of the equation. And on both sides of the equation, both countries, of course, wonder about the reliability of the other. But the fact is that this fundamental dilemma is still very much there. This is perhaps even stronger for a country like, like Australia, which feels and has felt since at least you white, but even before, that uh, it would somehow have to choose at some point between its prosperity and its security. Why did I say that? I said that because, yes, we are in this kind of situation in which also the U.S. plays... Uh, no, I'll, let me stay for a, a few more minutes on this question of the regional relationship. The other, the other problem that India is facing, uh, has been facing before, before it started even considering the China factor, and kept facing afterwards, that it had basically no problem with any of its neighbors in the East at least, or no problem which was unmanageable. There were border disputes with Bangladesh, there were border disputes or smaller border disputes with, with... All this was totally manageable. It's only in the West and uh, India, uh, at the time at least, had uh, a uh, major, major uh, intractable uh, problem. But it had no convergence as well. Take a country like Indonesia. Do countries have a common maritime border? Does that mean that they should act together? Well, for a long time there was basically no need. So it's really China which appeared the glue with the kind of dilemma that was mentioning. Now, the U.S. into all this plays some sort of paradoxical role. Paradoxical because on the one side it is uh, what they put everybody together. Being an ally of the U.S., and that's why also the rapprochement <coughs> with India was important, was being part of 
not the same system of alliance. The word was still taboo and to a large extent still is, the word alliance, I mean. But at least there was no obstacle to closer cooperation between the two. And that bring me to another point later on. But at the same time, if you were in a solid partnership with the United States, why on earth would you have to rely on lesser powers? What benefit would you get from that? You might get involved in the problem of lesser countries or lesser military powers for absolutely no reason. So there was again a very strange situation which emerged there, where at the same time the US factor was both a facilitator and not an inhibitor, <coughs> but uh, a factor lessening the need for other uh, integration processes. Last consideration, I mean, building up a strategic partnership, something complicated, need a level of political trust and availability. Who was a military power in the region? On top of it, who was a military power that India could trust in the region? Not many countries. And if you look at the, the, the degree, the intensity of the, the partnership, you have a very clear uh, hierarchy uh, in, India's, in India's foreign policy there. The first partner in, the, in Southeast Asia to India is Singapore. So the smallest country of the whole region is also the most solid partner of, uh, of India. Well, it's interesting to note that is as much, if not much more, in the advantage of Singapore than it is of India, because Singapore can train alone, not, not in the context of joint exercises, but alone on India's territory, and is the only country so far which, uh, which India allows to, uh, to do such things. It is also a country which tests its own missile on Indian territory. Well, you might say, or oh, complicated to do so on, uh, on Singaporean territory, true, and so on. But I mean, that also indicates a degree of proximity, which is materialized in other ways, in a perhaps more positive way and more, more balanced way with the Simbex exercises, which, is, uh, which are uh, submarine exercises. And submarine exercises, joint exercises, means su suppose a level of political trust, which uh, which you don't find just uh, just everywhere. Next come, uh, next come, I think uh, Vietnam, and then of course there is some ambivalence. The ambivalence being that yes, you want to have Vietnam because the enemy of your enemy is how do you say? Uh, is my friend. <laughs> is my friend. <laughs> yes, uh, but at the same time. As friendly as you want to be with Vietnam, you don't want to risk uh, your relationship with China for interests which are not yours. And this is also another element that has to be taken into consideration. So you've got sort of a hierarchy of partnerships which reflects a degree of uh, political trust, which reflects the reality of the military power which exists in one given country and so on. And there we go to the point. Last point I, wanna, I want to discuss before I come to, uh, to the conclusion is the following. One of the major drivers of India's foreign policy has always been the quest for strategic autonomy. Strategic autonomy is no more than a dependency control in your foreign policy. But it does illustrate a kind of mental revolution that India has to do while engaging in its uh, look-east policy. Because the concept went from quasi-state
strategic autarky. I'm exaggerating a little bit to make the point. I mean, India was never totally isolated. This is not true. But nevertheless, there was a quasi-strategic autarky to autonomy of choices. That is from a situation where India would do it alone or not do it because it was alone to a situation where it would keep its autonomy of decision in order to leverage others. The nuclear tests are a case in point. In the nuclear test, India decided in 1998 to do something which is very unpopular in the entire international community. There are two countries which do not condemn India in 1998. There are Russia and France. But by doing so, it does make sure that the United States can no longer ignore India in its own strategic calculation, in particular in its own strategic calculation vis-à-vis China. So gradually, this is a cause for rapprochement, and this is something which brings the two countries together. But that changes also the perception of the world, because that means that you have to be able to work with others, to partner with others. So your perception is changing, your perception is changing to the process. And that was the, the new reality. So gradually the term of multipolarity comes in and sinks in. India is now able to multiple partner with which, with each of them, it will make sure that it's never dependent enough to be constrained its own foreign policy choices, but that it can leverage whenever it wants to. This is never complete, this is never that clear cut, but this is more or less the idea, and this is still what's going on now. I won't go any further really, but I want to come to the conclusion as to what, what can be, uh, what can be uh, seen from this, uh, from what I just said. First of all, I think that the the ELP should not be construed, I, I think I said that at the beginning, as some sort of grand strategy. This is, again, a very cumulative process, it happens over time, and, and this is something which is, in a way, still ongoing. So it doesn't matter if you call it Lucas, Actis, and so on. What matters is that there is a deepening of Asian integration and of India learning how to work with the rest of the world. The second thing is also something I've discussed, which is that with the growing polarization of Asia, which is not a good thing for anybody, by the way, but comes also uh, a gradual erosion of some of the foundation of India's foreign policy. And this is something which is uh, a little scary for many, many Indian decision makers. In this context, uh, one can say, one can see also that the Lukis policy will remain economically and politically relevant only if India is, reform, is capable of reforming its economy and keep pace with the regional economic development, in other words, to keep pace with China, the relation can be asymmetric, but the asymmetry cannot be too loud, otherwise uh, India will lose all relevance. And this is certainly one of the main worries of the Indian leadership today. Finally, but that would not be my, my last point, is that the, the Lucas policy illustrates also the difficulty met by country on China's periphery to define their posture in a context where neither they neither want to antagonize China nor do they want to get too cozy to it. And they where they want to also benefit from China's growth to the extent that they can because this is another problem that 
is today changing the, um, the perception of China. And last is the question of asymmetry of power. I mean, it's complicated to build up a relationship when the asymmetry is such between, for example, the US and India, and to build up a balanced relationship which can lead to something meaningful, because that leads to frustration, that leads to a loss of interest of the stronger element of the two, and so on. So there is a constraint here which is an additional one. To conclude, can we say that the Lukis policy has been something successful? Yes and no. Yes, because there is absolutely no question that if you look at India's foreign trade today, if you look at India, FDI in India today, there is no comparison between now and what it was then. Uh, if you look at the level, the, the, even the poverty level has been substantially reduced and so on. Yet, <coughs> if you compare it to, with China's growth, there is simply no comparison between the two. So it has worked to an extent. The other point that it leads to is that your ability to conduct foreign policy and a significant foreign policy is a direct function of your capacity to reform at home. So every foreign policy starts and ends at home, and this is an example of it. But when it comes to um, uh, the political side, yes, it's been a success. Yes, it's been a success with some frustration, not just for India, but also for its partner. We always believe that India doesn't do enough and doesn't really fight uh, behave the way it should be according to his own weight. But at the same time, India is part of the East Asia Summit today. That is the apex organization when it comes to the security agenda of the entire Asia and a little beyond. But the last point I'd like to conclude, uh, with which I'd like to conclude, is has it succeeded <coughs> in military terms? Well, again, yes and no. But I think that there the yes is perhaps much stronger than the no. A, because it's been able to build up relationship with A, the still number one power in the world. And that doesn't mean that everything is easy, not that the tension with China has been eliminated. The standoff uh, in Doklam last summer was an example of it. it lasted for 10 weeks. Uh, on two occasions, at least, there were fear that may degenerate into a, a real conflict. It did not. But at the same time, it is clear that the kind of relationship that India has built, the kind both with China, both with the United States and so on, is limiting the extent to which China can pressurize India. And, and the other way around, I mean, if you looked at the relationship between India and, uh, and Pakistan, for example, that would more or less be the same thing. So you can always argue that, yes, this is also due to the nuclearization of the subcontinent and the region, but at the same time, this nuclearization, as I hope I've demonstrated in this in the last few minutes, is an integral part of the integration process, at least in the strategic field. So there we are, with a situation which is far from being perfect, uh, which definitely requires Indian decision makers to take bolder steps and go further in their in the reform process, but which by and large, has been a success. Now, it's up to you to decide whether the glass is half full, half empty, 40, 25 full, 75 empty, well, whatever. Nevertheless, that, I think, was an interesting process. Now, it's not there.